So um, we'll have a, a brief homily tonight on uh, the theme of uh, how God sees us. Uh, God does not look at the outward appearance. He looks at the heart. Um, let's begin with prayer. Oh God, thank you so much that you do not look on our outward appearance, nor does our approval in your eyes depend on our performance or how we present ourselves or what we did yesterday or what we'll do tomorrow. That is such a relief. We are so glad that you are the God who you are and not a God like us. So Lord, we bless you and we pray that you would transform our thinking mightily by the power of your Holy Spirit so that our minds would be conformed. For you have said, we have the mind of Christ. Now, Lord, impart the mind of Christ to us until Christ is formed in us and we as one body are fully mature, attaining to the fullness of the measure of the stature of Christ. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Lord. Let's begin with... 1 Samuel chapter 15. It's better if you read it out of a Bible. If you have a Bible, I recommend it. You don't have to. We have it up here for everybody who is very good at making their screen do that thing and who is watching on their phone, like lying in bed or something. First Samuel chapter 15, verse 34. Raise your hand if you're trying to get there and you're not there yet. Then Samuel went to Ramah, and Saul went up to his house in Gibeah of Saul. Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death, but Samuel grieved over Saul. And the Lord was sorry that he had made Saul king over Israel. So, this was the big thing that the people of Israel had asked for. They'd asked for a king. They wanted to be like the other nations. They wanted a king like the other nations to lead them out into battle, etc. And Samuel warned them, well, if you have a king, it'll be like, you know, a monarchy, and there are major disadvantages to that. And they said, we want to be like the other nations. And God said, all right, they haven't rejected you. They've rejected me. So anoint a king, and he anoints Saul. And this, Samuel chapter 15, verse 34, starts right after Saul turned back from following the Lord. This is verses after Saul had made his final decision to not follow the Lord anymore. And Samuel had just spent all night angry and crying, before, crying out to the Lord And that is an example and a pattern for us when our brothers or sisters or children or fathers or mothers fall or have a moral failing. We don't cast them out. The Lord determines those who are, the Lord knows those who are his. But we take our grief and our anger and our hurt before the Lord and we cry out to him all night. When was the last time you did that? The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul? I have rejected him from being king over Israel. Fill your horn with oil and set out. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, 
for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears of it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do, and you shall anoint for me the one whom I name to you. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him trembling and said, Do you come peaceably? How many of you have had a discipleship meeting with your pastor or discipler where, you know, they said, meet me on such and such a night. And you're like worried about it all week. And you go there and they're just like pouring out like grace and imparting kindness and the love of God to you. And it's like such a relief. And you thought you were going to get reprimanded up and down and probably excommunicated. He said, peaceably, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Sanctify yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he sanctified Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is now before the Lord. Can you just see Eliab? This is like, Remember Saul? Saul was the tallest man in the entire nation, right? It said he was a head taller like, than everybody else in the whole country. So who's the tallest person in the whole country? I don't know, six foot tall, right? So Saul's like seven feet tall. So that'd be like, who's the tallest person in our country? I mean, there are some very, very tall people. Let's say about seven feet, right? The tallest average person in the average city or something, seven feet tall. So Saul's like eight feet tall. He's very impressive on his, when you look on his outward appearance. And this is the mindset of the people of Israel. They were impressed. Here's Samuel. This is a very natural mindset. Of course we're impressed by people's appearances. And of course we're unimpressed by unimpressive appearances. Well, here's Samuel, the prophet of the Lord, and the Lord has something different in mind, but Samuel is looking on Eliab and thinking, surely the Lord's anointed is right here in his presence. He's getting his horn of oil ready. He's unscrewing the little cap. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord does not see as mortals see. They look on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And as God's words are echoing in his mind and soaking into his spirit, and I do not think he ever forgot those words because we are reading tonight from the book of Samuel. Samuel wrote this. This is one of the most significant experiences of his entire life. When the Lord powerfully spoke from spirit to spirit, when the Spirit of God put in his heart that the Lord does not look, does not see as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance. The Lord looks on the heart. And that stayed with him. That is a verse to memorize. 
Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. God said, Neither has the Lord, or Samuel said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Hmm, that's kind of disappointing. Then Jesse made Shammah pass by, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen any of these. Samuel said to Jesse, Are all your sons here? And he said, There remains yet the youngest, but he's keeping the sheep. Wow, some dad. His dad was so sure. His his father was so sure that that son didn't wouldn't amount to anything or or that he didn't even include him with the other sons. He didn't even bring him to church. He didn't even bring him to sacrifice before the Lord. He left him at home to do the chores. The animal chores. Like you couldn't get an animal, but you couldn't get a sheep sitter. So this is like the kind of vision for how great you'll become that this father is imparting to his son. Just that one. He liked the other ones. He was really hoping one of them would be king. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and bring him, for we will not sit down until he comes here. He sent and brought him in. Think about how long they had to wait. I'm sure they ran to get him. They, I think, waited for some time. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. The Lord said, rise and anoint him, for this is the one. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And the spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David from that day forward. Doesn't that remind you of Jesus after uh, when he was preparing to begin his ministry in his 30s? And the Holy Spirit descended on him like a dove in baptism. And all of a sudden, he received a baptism of wilderness, a baptism of temptation, a baptism of testing and suffering. Well, that's going to be most of the rest of David's life, now that the Holy Spirit has been poured out on him, now that he has been baptized in the Holy Spirit, we might say. And then Samuel set out and went to Ramah. So his brothers were shocked. I'm thinking David is the runt of the family. I'm just thinking he's the shortest. It says he's ruddy, so that means red. And, uh, and uh, I take that to be that uh, he looked different from his, he looked distinct from his brothers because he was always outside and shepherds don't leave flocks by night. They stay with them day and night. And you know, if you have wolves and lions and bears. Uh, who's going to protect the sheep? Either nobody, and they'll get eaten, or the shepherd, and maybe the shepherd gets wounded or eaten. People, you know, lions kill people. Well, we all know that David has killed both the lion and the bear. And if we were to read on in 1 Samuel, we would see that. If 
you just if we just stop that passage there and step back and put your put yourself in the shoes of one of his brothers or of his father, you'd be shocked. You might you'd probably be angry. You'd probably be upset. You'd be very surprised that the Lord sent this great like the senior pastor of all of the country, the world really. He's like the archbishop, the archbishop, and he comes in and he anoints your kid brother, the one that all of you regarded as the right fit to watch the sheep. So this is a pattern, and these things were written down as examples and as a pattern for us on whom the fulfillment of the ages has come. Number one, Jesus had nothing about his appearance that was extraordinary or extraordinarily beautiful. He was plain Joe, right? Average Joe. There was nothing that made people think, ah, the king of Israel, surely the, next, surely the Messiah, surely the king is in our midst. And he is the pattern and example for us. And although there are extraordinary people, people with an extraordinary appearance or talents or whatnot, um, most of us aren't. Christ is our pattern in this. And having been glorified and beautified, he gives us the beauty and the respect, not usually of men, for we don't usually have too much of that. We're not movie stars. He bestows on us his selection, his pleasure, his delight, his choosing, his Holy Spirit as a seal that he's going to finish transforming us into the likeness of Christ. This is our theme tonight. Let's read on in Psalm 20. Psalm chapter 20, verse 1. This is a benediction. And verse 7 is our target and goal as we read this psalm. Let's start in verse 1. The Lord answer you in the day of trouble. The name of the God of Jacob protect you. May he send you help from the sanctuary and give you support from Zion. May he remember all your offerings and regard with favor your burnt sacrifices. May he grant you your heart's desire and fulfill all your plans. May we shout for joy over your victory and in the name of our God set up our banners May the Lord fulfill all your petitions. Now, I know that the Lord will help his anointed. He will answer him from his holy heaven with mighty victories by his right hand. Some take pride in chariots and some in horses. But our pride is in the name of the Lord our God. They will collapse and fall, but we shall rise and shall stand upright. Can you, can you almost hear that other scripture ringing in your ears? He lifts the needy from the ashes and seats them high up with the princes. That's a, adjusted to be a song lyric, but it's a verse. Give victory to the king, O Lord. Answer us when we call. That is a beautiful prayer. And close to the middle of it, in verse 7, we see the author's, something that has been buried deep within the writer's heart. In verse 7, 
He just comments in the middle of his benediction. Some take pride in chariots. Let's say, some take pride in tanks. Or some take pride in jet fighters. And some in soldiers and Navy SEALs. But our pride is in the name of the Lord our God. Some boast because our nation is the strongest and the greatest nation on earth. It has the biggest victory. Who's better than, insert the name of your nation here. Some take pride in my new shoes. They're very white. Well, these are actually black. Some take pride in their clothes, which are always crisp and new. Some take pride in their hair. Some take pride in the shape of their face. Some take pride in having the respect that comes from man. Some take pride on they've worked so hard, they've done work so well at their jobs, they've gotten the promotions, now they're respectable. Now they can stand up straight, they've accomplished something. Some take pride in I haven't sinned sexually in two months. I'm really making it as a Christian. Some take pride in, hmm, everybody at church really likes me. Now I'm likable. Some take pride in, my parents, my parents said I was going to go far. So it doesn't matter when someone else approaches me like a, like a housemate and confronts me on a fault that I don't think I want to face. Some take pride in knowing it all. And there's just something in some of us that says, whatever everybody else says is wrong. I remember this was deeply buried in my spirit. I remember going for a walk with uh, uh, Greg. Um, we were walking through the uh, parking lot of like where Firestone on Airway is, that area. And we walked along. It's a big parking lot. And we, so we had some time to walk, and we sat down for lunch. I, I don't remember what he was saying. He said quite a few things to me. It was all about the EPDC and, and this and that and discipleship and basic principles of what it means to be a disciple. He was just taking me under his wing. And I remember something in my spirit was rising up thinking, no. No, that's wrong. No, what is this guy talking about? And I respected him as a person. I respected him as a pastor. And he was kind to me as a new friend. And yet there was something in my spirit that just disagreed with what he said. What it was was I took pride in knowing it all. And, hmm. well, so I fit into the category of Psalm 28 because pride cometh before a collapse and a fall. You should memorize Psalm 20, verse 7. And you should apply it in your life in this way. Imagine you're driving down the road and you're irritated at other drivers. And you're thinking, man, these people are bad drivers. How many of you think that thought most of the time you're on the road? I see those hands. That's four of us, including me. Not every day, but I struggle with this, right? So here I am, driving down the road. Statistically speaking, I am an average driver, and so is everybody else, right? Let's just think, let's just think math here. Let's just think basic facts. So statistically speaking, I'm, there's nothing, I don't have any special driver training, right? I have a wedding, you know, nothing, right? So I'm just as good a driver as everybody else, right, um, if we're being realistic. However, there's this thought in my mind as I'm going down the road that these people are bad drivers. What does that come out of? It comes out of logic. 
It comes out of basic statistics. On average, I'm better than the average person. <laughs> We're getting a shaken head. No, that comes out of the temptation rising from my flesh to take pride in, I'm a better driver than you are. You made a driving error, or you cut too close, or, or you should have accelerated when I was coming up behind you, or gotten out of my way, because the fast lane's for passing. So these things rise up from the flesh. And this is an example of, um, of some who take pride in the things with which we connect our identity. And Psalm 20, verse 7, takes, takes a spiritual sword and it jabs it right into that part of us from which our identity comes. And the scripture says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old, it's gone. I'm sorry. We have no confidence in the flesh. The new has come. Look, behold, the new has come. So when that thing within you that rises up to condemn another or to take pride in your own outward appearance or inward skill or suave or, or accomplishments or all those things that we lean on, A, those are out. And allow permitting those thoughts to remain in our mind results in the collapse and the fall that always comes from pride. That's pride. And it's an unscriptural or, or a disagreement with what Christ says about us. He says, I have chosen you and I have named you. In Revelation, he says, I will write a new name. And it says his name, it's like Christian, it's like all over our foreheads. I mean, that's what they call us, isn't it? And on our hands, even on our work, even on the things we do with our hands, the, the fingerprints of Christ are visible wherever, whatever, on whatever we put our hands to do, right? So the Lord has identified himself with us. He has put the Holy Spirit indwelling in us. He has determined that we will be called by his name, Christians. He's put us in these churches where people assume that since we go to church, you know, we should be holy. Why do they assume that? Because they know something about God. And they know God should be better than us. Should be, at least. It's a, it's a, it's a twisted view of God that they have, but it's a right assumption that if we call ourselves Christians, we, there should be something different about us. So the Lord has chosen those who start out life, and as we are walking down the sanctification lane, over and over, we have to be reminded, the Holy Spirit has to speak to our spirit, that when we're taking pride over against someone else in this thing from which our identity comes, my, my ability to play my sport, my ability to excel, my ability to keep my cool when somebody else loses it, my ability to be tactful, or my ability to outshout somebody. Uh, you might think, well, this person's weak because I can barrel over them. Like, when you're in a fight with somebody, when you're in conflict, haven't you ever had that thought that, that 
this other person's weak and you start to kind of maybe boss them a little bit, or, or they start to boss you if you're the other person on this other side of that relationship, and, and they start to boss you and something rises up in you and says, oh, they're like a control freak or a manipulator, and I'm not. Hmm. It's okay to gauge people, and we should, but when that thing rises up inside of us where we begin to identify with whatever we think our good point is, that is the old man, which in Corinthians it says is gone. It's out. And it will always lead to the collapse of that fleshly mindset and whatever has been constructed on that foundation. Take it for me, it's usually a hard collapse. Let's move on to Ezekiel. Ezekiel 17. Ezekiel chapter 17, verse 22. So this, these three verses talk about trees. What did we learn about trees? When God used, talks about trees in the Bible, vine and fig tree, cedar tree, fruitful branches, fig trees that do or don't bear fruit, uh, the tree of life, what is he trying to tell us when he uses trees in the Bible? Shout it out, raise your hand. He's talking about trees in the Bible often represent people, people. Yeah, and people are, are supposed to bear fruit like trees bear fruit. So the tree of life in the garden is a prototype of Christ, who is the true vine, and when we are connected to that vine, and we are grafted into him, and he's the root of David. He's also the offspring of David. He's the root of Jesse, and we're grafted into that and grafted in so that we are the descendants, the spiritual children and grandchildren of the forefathers and patriarchs who came before us in our spiritual lineage from which we count our heritage. Um, and our, we might say, ethnic identity, right? In the Bible, there are only two people groups. There's the people of God, or the sons of God, and there are the, uh, the daughters of men, right, in Genesis, or, uh, or non-Christians, right? There are only two kingdoms. There's Christ's kingdom and the kingdoms of the world. <clears throat> so, trees, people, usually. Ezekiel chapter 17, verse 22, Thus says the Lord God, I myself will take a sprig, so like a little twig, a little branch, from the lofty top of a cedar. I will set it out. I will break off a tender one from the topmost of its young twigs, and I myself will plant it on a high and lofty mountain. You ever break off one of those branches from one of those kinds of trees where you just break it off and then you stick it in the ground and water it and squish the dirt around it and it grows into a tree all by itself? That's what God is doing here, except we're talking about people here, remember? On the mountain height of Israel I will plant it in order that it may produce boughs and bear fruit and become a noble cedar. Under it, every kind of bird will live. In the shade of its branches will nest winged creatures of every kind. Think, all the other people will come to the mountain of the house of the Lord and find rest and shelter and 
hope in and be grafted in and share under the vine and the fig tree the peace of the Messiah, who is the branch that becomes the tree as others are grafted in. And as the house of God is filled, as the church grows, Verse 24, all the trees of the field shall know that I am the Lord. I bring low the high tree. Have you ever seen a tree that was flattened? Have you ever seen a tree that was flattened when an elephant or a bear like completely pulled it down or tipped it over and crushed it to the ground? Or if you were a kid and maybe you were a boy and maybe you like to be a little rough, Maybe you've pulled a couple trees down and then stepped on them, and maybe you let go and they snapped up. We're talking this massive, like the biggest tree in the, in the entire Middle East, like the, the greatest of the Middle Eastern trees in this area, a lofty cedar. God says, I bring low the high tree. What's that? Trees in the Bible often represent people and groups of people. God brings low the exalted one the one who trusted in himself, like Jesus said in the parable. And I bring low the nations around you, O people of God. I make high the low tree. As a matter of fact, I can take a twig, and I can take it from the lowlands, and I can put it on a mountaintop, and then I can make it grow until it's not just the at growing at the highest elevation of all trees, it's also the biggest and the best and the greatest of all trees. And every, it'll be so big that everything else can come and find rest under its branches. That is Christ and his people. But it also prophetically refers to individuals for the first will be last, but the last, that's usually us, that's usually the meek, will be first. So it doesn't really matter what anybody thinks of you. It only matters what God thinks of you. And that includes parents. Remember David and his fatherly impartation of blessing? Wasn't much, wasn't anything. He didn't seem to give him zilch. He uh, didn't have low expectations of his son. It seems like he had no expectations of his son. It's like they gave him the position of a servant. Well, somebody's gotta take care of the animals. but. In the Lord's eyes, the Lord is always looking at your heart. And like in the parable of the talents, he is not saying, well, Teresa, you had five talents, and you made five more. So you're the greatest. And then, Sam, you had two talents, and you made two more. And two is less than 10. So you're, you're OK. Actually, the Lord's looking at your heart, and he's seeing with what you did, with what you were given. And with that, he is pleased. And he's looking at your heart, and he's seeing with what you did, with what you were given. And he does not care. He does not compare how great you become in life with the person on the other side of the pew, or the other side of the office, or the other side of the world. The Lord is concerned with primarily one thing. He does call us to bear fruit. But if I'm a little stubby tree, and I bear a piece of fruit over here and a little piece of fruit over here, a little grape there, a little kumquat there, a little mango over there, and here's another, well, every, it should be all the same kind of fruit, because every tree bears fruit after its own kind. And, and here's this mighty tree. They were born rich. 
They were, they were well-educated. They were well-liked. They were uh, a beautiful or a handsome person, much, much more than me. And they did very well. And they became a great preacher or evangelist or missionary or mom or whatever great calling is on their life, right? Um, but I did my best. The Lord is looking at your heart. And he is not impressed with great accomplishments so much as he is impressed with that in your heart and in your actions, you desire to please the Lord and you bring forth daily fruit in keeping with repentance. It's the lowly and the contrite heart that is impressive to God. And the actions that come in keeping with that meekness, that daily repentance. The Lord says, I dry up the green tree and make the dry tree flourish. I, the Lord, have spoken. I will accomplish it. This is like where Paul is talking about our sanctification in one of the epistles. And he says, he will surely do it. Let's go to Psalm chapter 92. We'll go through this one a little more quickly. Psalm chapter 92, verses 1 through 4, and then we'll skip to 12 through 15. Psalm 92. It is good to give thanks to the Lord, to sing praises to your name, O Most High, to declare your steadfast love in the morning and your faithfulness by night, to the music of the lute and the harp, to the melody of the lyre. For you, O Lord, have made me glad by your work. At the works of your hands I sing for joy. Verse 12. The righteous, the, 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 the rich, the talented, the good-looking, the, the one who had all the advantages, the righteous flourish like the palm tree and grow like a cedar in Lebanon. They are planted in the house of the Lord. So a tree is a person. The house of the Lord is, is the people of God. And the Holy Spirit dwells in the Holy of Holies, which is wherever two or three of us are gathered to pray, there the Lord is among us. They flourish in the courts of our God. In old age, they still produce fruit. This is your destiny if you are faithful in the little things. In old age... They still produce fruit. I don't care if you've been mistreated and if you have failed every day up till now. If you are faithful in the little things, in old age, they still produce fruit. They are always green and full of sap, showing that the Lord is upright. He is my rock, and there is no unrighteousness in him. And... We're a little behind time, so we're going to um, close with one verse from 2 Corinthians and one brief comment. Um, it's uh, 2 Corinthians. Uh, we're just going to read verse chapter 5, verse 16 and 17. 2 Corinthians 5, 16. From now on, therefore... We regard no one from a human point of view, even though we once knew Christ from a human point of view, we know him no longer in that way. So if anyone is in Christ, 
There is a new creation. Everything old has passed away. See, everything has become new. That is the gospel that I wash my mind with in the morning. That is the gospel that, that I go through weekly, daily, sometimes many times a day. And that is what the Christian life consists of. Washing our shame, inability, failures, um, meager attempts at bringing some kind of quality sacrifice or performance or presentation or offering before the Lord. And by the end of the day, when we've done our best, when I've done my best, I, I should have like two heaping handfuls of, of offering and, and I've got like a little grape or a little raisin and everything else is just dust and ashes and I've failed or I've wasted it or I, or I sinned. And I bring it before the Lord and I still offer it before the Lord even though it's not much because he's still pleased. But right now, I showed up and I didn't shrink back to shame and self-condemnation at the end of the day and say, well, I screwed up again. I fell into that sin. Or I spent the whole day on YouTube instead of being productive or reading my Bible. At the end of the day, every day, I'm still going to show up before the Lord, and I'm going to present myself to him because it says acknowledge him in all your ways. And I want straight paths, and I want the blessing of his presence. So even though most of the time I have little or nothing to offer him, when all is said and done at the end of the day, I'm still going to be there in his presence. And often I'm just weeping and basking simultaneously in his warmth and his affection. Because that is the gospel. That God every day washes my sins away. Every day is pleased to dwell in my house. Every day is pleased to make me an offering to him. And what he wants is my service more than he wants my successes. He already has all the cattle on a thousand hills. All the trees of the forest are his. But he is so good that he has desired to make me among those trees who are gathered together to clap our hands in worship. You never want to trade the glory that comes from the immortal God for the glory that comes from man. It doesn't matter what anybody thinks of you. It only matters what God thinks of you. When, my, when our daily words and actions are to please other people or to meet their expectations, that means we're still more concerned with pleasing people or impressing our housemates or pastor or whatever than pleasing the Lord, doesn't it? Let's worship.